Welcome to Black Bold. My name is James DeFiori. This is episode eight. And with me today, we have a really interesting guest, actually. Um, he's a former counterterrorism expert, um, one of the people responsible for bringing down the famous Toronto 18 terrorism plot. And I believe now he is a professor for public safety at Sheridan College. I think I have that right. Seneca. His name is Seneca. Seneca. Oh, I don't want to get the alma maters all crazy about each other now. Um, Mubin Sheikh, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I thought of you the other day as I watched about uh, one of the, I think it was her, um, he was denied role. Um, and I, I just thought of you immediately. I have to say, I think your story is one of the most interesting stories I think I've ever come across when you look at the sort of milieu of terrorism since 9-11. And um, I didn't know this probably because... Uh, well, I, I, I mean, I, I think it was focused on for a while, but I didn't know that you had actually been de-radicalized. And I was wondering if you could, we could start there and how, how it came to be that you came from, uh, I think you were born um, in, in Toronto or Mississauga or something, and then you went to uh, Pakistan, is that right? Yeah, I am uh, born and raised in Toronto, Canada, kind of grew up with uh, issues of, around identity crisis, uh, had, uh, you know, had an awakening, let's call it that, at 18, went to Pakistan, met the Taliban by chance. I didn't go to seek them out um, and uh, became radicalized. And then 9-11 uh, happened. That made me really reconsider my commitment to the cause. Then I moved to Syria in early 2002 before the war. So it was still normal. So saying that you were going to Syria in 2002 is not crazy. Uh, but that's where I went through that period of de-radicalization. I spent two years there studying Arabic and Islamic studies, uh, was really introduced to the Islamic scriptures in the primary languages, and came to understand that my interpretations were completely wrong. And so uh, I then returned back to Canada in 2004, and that's when I got recruited by CSIS to become the undercover. And are you allowed to talk about what it's like to be recruited by CSIS? <laughs> Am I allowed to talk about it? I will speak in very general terms. Great. <laughs> I'm sure that's how they did it with you as well. <laughs> go like go on. Okay. How, how do you get approached, for example? Well, so uh, you know, understanding the so uh, let me just say that I got involved, you know, in 2004. It was early 2004. Worked with CSIS for about two years. Uh, at the end of it is when I was introduced to the Toronto 18 members. And so it was just another, you know, operation for me. It was, you know, to get close to them, find out what their ideas were, who they were plotting and planning and everything else. Uh, it was only later on, I should uh, say, that really after the arrests, which took place in 2006, uh, I undertook a master's degree uh, in policing intelligence and counterterrorism to understand what I got myself involved in. Uh, because it, it totally changed my life forever. Um, so even when I recount how CSIS recruits somebody, it's to understand the larger context of what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an intelligence service that it's not a police service. So like in the US, the FBI does both jobs of CSIS and the RCMP, right? In the UK, okay. for example, you have MI5, which is the domestic security intelligence. And then you have Scotland Yard, which is the federal policing component. So in Canada, we have CSIS that does the intelligence and the RCMP that does the federal policing. So in an intelligence service, 
uh, you're going to recruit people that have access to the people that you're investigating, uh, whoever they may be. So whether it's bikers or neo-Nazis or Muslim supremacists, it's the same tool that's used, the undercover, the human intelligence source, right? So you have human intelligence and then you have signals intelligence, which is tapping phones, listening to conversations, emails, etc. So I came into this through that human intelligence network, and it was because I had access to the people that they were targeting for investigation. So oh, I should yeah. add how I actually got picked up was I had just come back from Syria. The first week that I got back, the first Canadian had been charged under the, the newly minted counterterrorism laws. Okay, this guy's name was Momin Khawaja. Momin Khawaja was arrested early 2004 in connection with the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot, okay, a year before the subway bombings happened. Momin Khawaja sat beside me in the Quran school we both went to as kids. Wow. So that's what prompted me to contact the service to say, listen, this must be a mistake. I can't believe it. I know this guy. And they said to me, well, it's not a mistake. It's actually out of our hands. It's it went to the RCMP. It was now prosecuted in court. But since you're saying that you know the family and you have, you know, ideas about it, uh, we're going to send somebody to come over and chat with you if that's okay. So, so uh, they they met me at uh, the joke is one of their ubiquitous CSIS offices, the the Tim Hortons, uh, and uh, actually sat with them with him, the one guy for some extended period of time. Was, went was through my life man? and. Yeah. No, no, he was not the <laughs> X-Files smoking guy, no. But he did kind of look pretty uh, like cliche government guy. You know, government oh, yeah. car. I mean, I, I was waiting in the coffee shop and, you know, and I could see people coming and going. And when he arrived, I was like, that's him. And it was him. <laughs> well, you're right man for the job then. Um, I heard you talk on an interview about uh, lots of different layers of identity come into play when you did the work that you did. Um, and I remember one thing that stuck out to me was that during 9-11, you told a story about how when, after it happened, I think it was your supervisor or someone came up to you and said, hey man, let us know if anyone gives you a hard time because of what happened today. And how you were completely shocked and taken aback by someone would be thinking like that when what just happened was, you know, people that um, practice the same religion that you practice killed a bunch of people that look like the people probably that came up to you and said, are you okay? Um, what did that tell you about, you know, I guess about 9-11 specifically, and then I guess maybe more broadly about how, um, you know, how identity and religion can sometimes just get so tangled that we don't know who our friends and who our enemies are. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a great point to highlight because I really do believe this is at the root of the vast majority of radicalization that we see in the West, whether we're talking, especially in the specifically in the Muslim context, it's a battle between uh, identities and, and what kind of a Muslim am I supposed to be? What does being a good Muslim mean? You know, in modern modern society, which is non-Muslim society, uh, it's there's like you know sin everywhere. If that's how they want to see it, so I mean, uh, I'll never forget that day. You know, I've I've told the story so many times, and I think that day is like really solidified in my memory. And I, you know, it's a Tuesday morning. I'm driving to work. I'm getting off at here, Ontario uh, Drive in Mississauga. I work near uh, Square One Mall. Um, and I was working customer service for a student loan center, right? The real terrorists, I tell you. 
<laughs> and um, and no, I heard the you know when the incident happened on the radio uh, that the plane hit the building. You know, and my initial reaction was Allahu Akbar. Now, anytime you hear that, it's probably because somebody's going to start shooting or blowing himself up, right? And but it is also used as an oh my god thing, right? So I get to work. I'm telling the story downstairs. Then I get upstairs. Uh, and and you can see, and that's when I come in and right away, because the way that I looked, I don't look, I didn't dress the way that I look now. Like my beard was like down to here, like proper, you know, Taliban beard. And I had like a turban and robes. So I looked the part. I was the only one in the building that looked that part. When I was taking the elevator up, up to the, the uh, floor, I could see the people looking at me and like just checking to make sure like my ID badge was there and this guy legit belongs on the on the elevator. I knew that like it started quickly. And so even when I got into the workplace for the for my bosses to come over and say that, I thought to myself, wow, like what I just thought I would really shocked me, you know, because I did think with all this that's going on, why would they think about me? And the answer to that is because that's the society that we have and we live in that we we don't put up for you know people getting harassed for things that they're not responsible for right and that's an important mm-hmm. thing to re you know reinforce i think because we get caught up in this you know oh well bad muslims are doing bad things but then something happens to muslims so like should i feel bad for them or should i be so this is you know this is what we're we're going through now yeah, I, I remember 9-11. I remember where I was. Um, I remember taking a plane for the first time after 9-11 uh, on Christmas Eve, American Airlines, down to Peru. And um, and I'll, I'll fully admit that I think I probably generalized uh, a Muslim man who was walk, pacing up and down the aisle in, in robe and beard and turban and all that and was praying really loud. And, and, and it turned out he was nervous. He was a nervous flyer. But the image of that was like, was for me just, you know, it just brought on this natural kind of way to stereotype him. And I felt bad afterwards. I was just like, well, that, you know, was completely unnecessary. And I'm trying to, <clears throat> I, I know I'm trying to figure out a way to ask you a question as to what is understandable versus what is prejudicial. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate. Like, this is a natural consequence of conditioning, right? We, 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 we've all, we see this terrible event that happens. It's on the news. It's repeated over and over. We are, you know, reinforcing that cycle of trauma. Okay. That's what's happening. And and so, and this spreads out into society. So you start to have, you know, media hyper representation of the topic of the religion of the people who belong to the culture. There's misinformation. There's opportunities now for nefarious actors to create hatred against people. So what's happening in society is this, this, this thing is spreading. And it's affecting and impacting our minds, the way we think, the way we look at people. Uh, and, and so we develop, we will, it's very natural. Like it's good that we are aware of it and we question that we're going through that, but understand that it is a natural thing because this event has happened because it's, you know, being reinforced over and over. Of course, we're going to feel that. Look at what was happening with ISIS bombings and ISIS attacks that were happening every other third day, right? In, in European countries. Right. So 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 even me, like I, you know, it's a little bit of a different story where even I felt, you know, I had experienced, if I can just tell a quick, quick, quick story where Please, I, I used to yeah. live at a place and I, there was this white guy walking by and covered in tats. 
and came over and started telling me this sob story about whatever. And I, I was just thinking to myself, here's this sob story he's telling me, you know, and he's like probably going to hit me up for some cash or whatever. And then, you know, and then I asked him, I was like, okay, so do you want me to give you money or something or whatever? He's like, no, no, man. Like he literally, he lived in the building that I lived in. His place got broken into and they, somebody stole all his stuff. And he said, no, I just came and told you that because I see you're a Muslim and I know that you're good people. And I wanted to come tell you my story. Oh, wow. And I was just like, holy That's crap. Awesome. This whole time I thought this guy was like trying to hustle me. So, you know, I, so I've been prejudiced, you know, in, in that way as well. And I think for us to be aware of that and to deal with that, that's how we, we, we move forward, right? And so when, uh, can you give us a little bit of background for people that don't know about the Toronto 18 um, and how you uh, were able to sort of infiltrate the group? Um, I remember there was controversy at the time and I, I, I don't know anything about this other than from what I've read. And I think the judge made it clear during the trial, but the, um, the idea that entrapment took place because i know that in the states the fbi over and over and over again are accused of sort of creating the terrorism plot people to it and then charging the people that they've added to the plot that they're the ones that created in the first place how did your how did the toronto 18 case differ from that kind of operation right great question um so so uh, i got involved just a backstory i guess again i was i was undercover with CSIS already my tasks were pretty straightforward. Uh, if it was to go and infiltrate a password protected chat forum, for example, uh, you know, I would, I would, I would do that. Okay, I would go in. I would see who's doing the recruiting. What narratives are they using? How do they bring people, you know, from the online to the offline and then in person to further radicalize? Uh, because in those days, you know, back in the old days, uh, before really social media, you had to actually get out and meet people and and face to face. So I did that. Plus, there was also the human stuff. So that it was this event is happening at this place. Uh, these are the guys that we're interested in. Find out, uh, find out what they're up to. They would never tell me in advance if they knew what they were up to because I was considered an independent verifier, like fact checker. Uh, so one day they told me this was the end of 2005. They told me there's a banquet hall. This event is going on. We want you to attend the event. And here are the guys that are coming. We want you to befriend them and tell us what they're up to. So they came. There was, a, the, you know, it's amazing how it worked out because I should tell this part of the story. It's so relevant. Uh, I went into the banquet hall, found my seat, waited for the guys to come. A guy came in. There was many people coming and going. One guy came in. He was wearing a smug covering his face, came over right next to me and sat down, basically. Uh, well, before he sat down, he pulled up the chair. And uh, he pulled his scarf down. And who was it? It was Zakaria Amara, the guy who was up for parole last week. Okay. Uh, so oh, he wow. came He and we started yeah. chatting. And then his buddies came. Uh, they became later members of the Toronto 18. They came. I joined them all at the table. After the event, we went outside. We started chit-chatting. So this is how I became friends with them. And then as we started chit-chatting, they saw an opportunity to try to recruit me to their cause which you know i played along and i did and they that's when they told me that they had these plans to you know go out camping and to to do all these activities and they wanted me to come and help them train their people so so first your to your question about you know what's entrapment and how does that all work uh so this is something that people really just didn't get right unfortunately you know some members and to this day you have 
unfortunately, members, even in the Muslim community, who just don't want to admit that these guys got caught. Um, so the main thing is that, A, the they had already decided that they were going to have a training camp for the purposes of committing a terrorist activity. Mm-hmm. B, they had already invited all the members who were going to attend the camp. And C, they had even checked out the location that the camp was going to be held at all before I was involved as the undercover. So the plot was well developed by then, and that's when I was inserted. As opposed to the cases where, you know, we're talking about, or we want to talk about where there is no plot, right? It's just some people, and then the the police will send in an undercover. The undercover gives them the ideas, and then they go on and act out those ideas and then they catch them. So right. entrapment is really making somebody do what they would not normally do. So if you get into a group of people who are already talking about killing the kuffar, then if I'm the undercover and I talk about killing the kuffar, I'm just matching their rhetoric. I'm not right. introducing anything new to it. And so so that that's how you know I would really show the difference between what are entrapment cases. But even in the U.S., let me just point, uh, last point, there, there is this automatic assumption that the mere presence of an undercover equals entrapment, and that's wrong also. Um, you know, just because a person gets caught, it's like I use the example of Little Lucy. Uh, Little Lucy is who you think is a nine-year-old girl on the internet telling you she wants to send nudes to you, and hey, do you want to send nudes back? If you're dumb right. enough to even yeah. to believe that that's Lucy's a nine-year-old and you send nudes back, you got caught. That's actually I- Agent Lucy. I am all for entrapment so, of pedophiles. <laughs> I think well, that we it's, should it's, be allowed it's to just entrap getting pedophiles. caught. Yeah, it's yeah. just getting caught. So, but it, there is a fine line, and we should respect that line. And I believe we should conduct these operations ethically and properly. Otherwise, people lose faith in that in that tactic. Is one of the reasons why people may have gone there is because didn't the Toronto eighteen eventually turn into the Toronto eight when all was said and done? It turned into so. So even the 18, right? I mean, there was a larger network. Uh, there were people that I interacted with uh, that were not arrested. Uh, so technically, it could have been the Toronto 25. Uh, and what it ended up being was Toronto, well, it could have been 25. It was initially 18. And of the 18, seven had their charges stayed against them, largely because of my sympathetic testimony. Uh, so that left it at uh, uh, 11 people, Toronto 11. Uh, is really uh, who were eventually convicted or pled guilty in the case. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? 
Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundell, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Yeah, that was an interesting sort of um, contrast for you, too. I remember reading back then about how you were undercover, but there were a few of these guys that you had kind of grown to and, and, and sort of had hope for, for lack of words, that like you, this person could still have a future. I, I, I I hope they change their life path sort of thing. Anybody that you still keep in contact with that you like that look up sort of like a big brother or someone that helps save them even like maybe out of those seven people that got their charges stayed. Not really. I think, <laughs> um, like you know, <laughs> no, no, I, I know what you mean. And I, did I, I touch I, on something. Know, I, did I touch on something there? Like I, I just, I was talking about <laughs> friendship, right? Like I'm just, you know, no, you, you raise a good point, uh, actually, about the dilemmas that undercovers have to go through that I went through as individually as a Muslim myself doing the doing this to other Muslims. Right. This was something that weighed on me. Uh, and this is something that a lot of Muslims, you know, haven't forgiven me for. But I, you know, I can't think like that. Right. I had to always I remember being in the mosque with my hands in prayer with you know, the brothers shoulder to shoulder standing in ranks of prayer, thinking that them thinking that I'm their tight, close brother. And, and I'm having this conversation with God while I'm praying that, my God, what am I doing? Like I'm, I'm an undercover. I'm, I'm trying, I'm catching these guys. These guys will not be praying in a mosque for a long, long time because of what I'm going to do to them. But then I told myself that, well, the idea came to my, to, in my head that, but look at what they're planning on doing. Like we, we, we can't allow that. We cannot give the message that this is allowed, that you can do this stuff. Like we're going to stop you. So I got over that. And it also, another point is that I did see the old me in them. And I thought to myself that if that was me and somebody else was an undercover and I got caught, how would I feel? How would I think? Now, my response to that was, even as radicalized as I got, I never got, I never escalated. I never got to the point where I started to plot and plan attacks against people. Okay. So there would be no reason for an undercover to be involved in that. So I went through these questions, uh, you know, and looking at them and seeing their situation and whatever you asked, you know, about saving some of them. And I, they were so young, early twenties. Right. But we also know that people who are very young do very stupid things. Look at what happened, you know, two days ago in London, 20-year-old kid, you know, ran over a Muslim family, right? What makes a 20-year-old kid do that? Like, they do that, right? Mentally ill people, like mentally ill people, sometimes they do commit acts of terrorism. You can't not prosecute them or not pursue them because they have these vulnerabilities. But here's the question. If you are aware of those vulnerabilities, how, what do you do? You cannot just stop a, a police investigation in the middle of it and say, oh, we're going to talk to these guys and we're going to send them to a social worker. How do you know that's going to work? Like you just tip them off now that they're being investigated, right? So there are, there are all these things that, that have to be looked at and taken into consideration. And for me, unfortunately, it was developing in real time. And I had to make decisions at those times. And look, I, I, I feel bad in that 
I could see that this car crash was about to happen. Okay. And you have an idea of what a car crash is like, but it's only when you hear the sound of it and you smell it and you see the victims yeah. that you realize how bad it actually was. And so in the end, in the end, I mean, just to your the question here is I did think about a lot of these things. Some of them I'm sure could have been saved. I think in some sense they were saved. Uh, some who, yeah, at least, I mean, they went to prison for a few months, several months, but you know what? They got out, right? They're not like others who ended up escalating even further. And remember the whole ISIS crisis came afterwards, right? 2012 onwards. So we're looking at this Toronto 18 case in a pre-ISIS context. So when we ask ourselves, do I think these people would have, you know, gone off to join ISIS? You know, one of the Toronto 18 guys who was already in prison, just a quick story, and then I'll give it back to you. In the summer of yeah. 2005, two of the guys who were already a part of the group long before I was sent in were arrested at the Canadian border trying to smuggle weapons across. Bullets in their socks, mm -hmm. guns in their underwear. And one of them got jail time. And while he was in prison, he was recruiting people. The ringleader of the Toronto group was actively like engaging this guy while he was in prison. The parole board even said that this guy is highly likely to reoffend when he gets out. And when he got out, got a fake passport, went to Syria, joined an Al-Qaeda affiliate, and died fighting over there. So, so that's the wow. entire context <laughs> with, with which we're dealing with. It's, a, it's such a different world. I, I heard you just use an expression I've never heard before, which is Muslim supremacy. And we live in we live in some weird political times, especially with identity. Usually people say we live in a white supremacist culture. Um, can you explain what Muslim supremacy is? Is it just literal? Is it just like Muslims believe that there is no God but you know, but Allah and therefore every other God is not God and we're better? Like because that's pretty much every religion, isn't it? Like Christians yeah. in the same way. There's no God but Jesus, right? Like Right. So I'm glad you picked up on that because I am trying to introduce that as a term to use because I know that when I said Muslim supremacist, your thought immediately goes to white supremacist. And I am trying yeah. to draw an analogy and a comparison between them because we understand what a white supremacist is, right? Uh, racial no. supremacy over everybody, right? <laughs> but, we, but we used to. So, so this is why I asked the question and yeah. then I'll let you go because like I'll let you keep going because the um, when I was a kid, Geraldo got hit in the face oh, yeah. with a chair oh, by, yeah. by a skinhead who everyone described as a... Now you fast forward to 2021 and you're like a white supremacist if you like to show friends. It's just, it's just not the same. Yeah. Like everything is white supremacy now. And it just feels like, well, how did we go from like, did I hit Geraldo with the chair? What What's going on? You know, why is it so broad now? Right? Yeah. I mean, people forget, like, you know, look at it from a majority minority cultural perspective, right? When we are a part of a majority culture and we have people who are doing bad things, they look like us, they believe the same things as we do, you know, it, there, it will always be there as an undercurrent in that majority society. So when we're talking about a majority white society, you're going to have white supremacy, you're going to have these old ideas from the past that, that still continue on. If I can use the same example with Muslim supremacy, okay? You have the Islamic world. You have people who believe that Islam should dominate over everybody else. If people should come under Sharia law and all those stereotypical things. There are people who believe that, right? Like, so 
it's a natural, I believe it's a natural consequence of the societies in which we live. It'll always be there. But now even, you know, you mentioned about like, you know, friends, watching friends as like the, the kind of comfortable go-to thing. For a long time, you had avowed white supremacists who loved Seinfeld. And they could never admit it to their white supremacist friends that they watched Seinfeld. Right. So or Bill Cosby. So this, this is, yeah. Yeah. This is the mixed bag of society we have, I think. And, um, you know, so, so this whole supremacy. I just comment, want to let you, yeah. 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 I just wanted to let you know that the idea of like living in a society where you're, you're, where minorities are depicted as this or that. I just want to let you know, in case it makes you feel better, white people, especially white men, normally we're the serial killers, right? We're the spree yeah. shooters. <laughs> Right. That, that's right. So yeah. it's not all good on this side of the fence <laughs> when it comes to stereotyping our crimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's people need to come to grips, grips with the reality that whatever background you're from, I don't care what religion, political, your poop don't, your poop stinks. Like it's not like your poop don't stink. Right. We all have them in all our cultures. You know, racism, you want to talk about racism. White people are not the only people afflicted by racism. Minorities are racist. I come from an Indo-Pak background, and believe me, they are very racist against white people. So, but this is a reality yeah. check that people need to have. And we we get we we we're like because we're inundated with all this stuff right now. There's you know uh, such a racial divide and awareness and 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 intersectionality and all this. I, if as long as we start with the basis that listen. We have, uh, you know, whatever background you come from, you have your bad people in, in, in your, your groups as well. So I think that is more powerful coming from you than it would be coming from me. Um, and the reason why is because I think oh, yeah. you can't say team, minorities are racist. No, I'm not right? even allowed to think yeah. that it's possible to be racist against white people. Like, you're, you know, like white people are the, the whole uh, critical gender or critical race theory that's happening right now is all about like white what, how do you know white supremacists? And it's like, are you punctual? Literally, one of the things, are you punctual? Um, perfectionism, um, mathematics apparently are now white supremacist structures of something. And I'm just- Okay, so good, because I suck at math. Yeah. Even well, though great, I'm Indian, I, I guess- Congratulations. Well, I'm Indian background, yeah. so I guess I'm supposed to be good at math, but I'm not. I'm ashamed to my family. See, okay. another, another joke I'm not allowed to make. I, ah, can, right. I can say, well, it's, Good thing I didn't get to where you live first, so I'd colonialize your ass. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm allowed to do. I'll crack the myself. jokes. I'll so, crack the jokes on your behalf. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. What I mean though, like it's just so maybe what I'm saying is that like as your as your position at Seneca, do you do you you must engage in these conversations with young people sometimes about race and about you know about society at large and and I was wondering, because th that's the generation that is most like that, that is most likely to say things like, oh, you can't be racist against white people, only white people can be racist. And was, do you ever engage like that with your students? Yeah, I, I like to, I pride myself on being very open and straightforward, and especially with my students. Uh, and, and because also my classes are on public safety and policing uh, in particular, and, and I'll have, I have women in, you know, in my class and minorities and uh, and, and I need to give them a reality check as well, right? Of like, you're dealing with policing, look at how the public perceives it. Think about your mental health. If you're a cop and you're being told that you're trash all the time, you're being told by people that, you know, they pay your taxes so they can tell you what, like all these things, right? Like they, if you're studying to become a police officer, think about all the things that go into that. And so I'm very brutally honest 
actually when i talk about this stuff in fact we have a whole thing on black lives matter and its impact on policing and its impact on recruiting and the whole mm -hmm. brand of policing so i race religion identity always comes up always and and i do i talk just like i talk now do you think it's more do you think it's important that police um have uh people patrolling neighborhoods that reflect the diversity in that neighborhood is that as important as it feels like it should be you know it's 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 amazing uh, if you go i mean so sir robert peel is one of the you know founders of like british modern british policing and he wrote this you know peelian principles uh way back in the 1800s and they are phenomenal principles you read them in 2021 and you think that they were drafted last week by a woke police services board the guy was just i mean incredible foresight that he had and he lays out in these peel principles about how policing is dependent on consent by the public the yeah. public doesn't buy into it don't feel that you're do you know representing the public the diversity of the public fair in their you know duties etc you're not doing policing you're you're ruining the policing brand it's kind of ironic because it's like as a muslim we see i see what happens when a, a bad examples of muslims right committing terrorist activities and now everyone hates islam and muslims now police kind of go through the same thing right like yeah. american cops are shooting up everybody at, i mean so goes the narrative and and now all cops are hated right and even police who are members of minorities are like you know assailed from that perspective of identity almost feeling that they have to choose can you be a cop and if you're a minority and so like the, again back to the original point about how identity conflicts i think are at the root cause of all this radicalization that we're seeing whatever the ideology whatever the political uh discourse yeah and then you know you mentioned black lives matter as well and um i think we'll wrap up soon but the uh the cultural impact of black lives matter shouldn't be understated i mean i've talked to a couple of friends in the states and they're like you know we, we see the media um, sort of like praise Black Lives Matter and he's like, there's positive points to that happening. He's like, but one of the things that <laughs> no one ever talks about is that if you go to Nago Southside or something like that, you'll find out that like 75% of the black residents there want the cops there. They don't want the cops to leave because if the cops leave, then the drug dealers will take over everything and it will become this war zone. And the media is afraid to talk to those black residents. They only want to talk to the black residents that can fulfill the narrative of Black Lives Matter. And I find it really interesting how afraid everybody is of optics. You know, like we're, we're afraid to criticize not black people like we should like we, we shouldn't just go and criticize black people because they're black, clearly. But Black Lives Matter, you can't criticize the organization because people are treating you as you're treating if you, as if you're just criticizing black people as a whole. And the black friends that I know are. Mm -hmm. Are like well that's ridiculous they're marxist a capitalist they'll say you know and they'll yeah. and and you, i have seen this this conversation ad attempted to be had on on television and it's always a landmine and the person that tries to bring up the point well you got to separate the organization from the slogan that guy does not have a good night <laughs> trying to explain himself right on a panel <laughs> well it's it's weird because for starters so i always teach it like this right like you know leftist terrorism i mean there are there are four waves of terrorism in traditional terrorist studies terrorism studies uh you know the anarchists the uh leftists 
uh, post-colonialist, and then religiously motivated. Those are the four waves mm. of terrorism, they call it. Two of them are leftists, like anarchists and, and new leftist terrorism. And Marxist groups and Marxist terrorism, I mean, the people who are hijacking the planes, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, is a Marxist organization. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it comes from that time period, right? Like, when Marxism and communism, socialism were, were prevalent in... So, so, yes, BLM, the organization, is a Marxist organization. And I know that there have been some uh, restrictions on people who want to mention the fact that the founder is, like, buying up these luxury properties and all this. So there's some very questionable uh, luxury purchases that she was making. So I, I'm definitely one to say definitely BLM, the organization, is something else, okay? The movement is, you know, the cultural thing. I mean... We have to understand. We we have to understand from where it's coming. The legitimate grievances that African American community has in the U.S. context. I mean, the, you know, there are ongoing problems, uh, even with police training. You know, so I I also come from another perspective Especially. of police training, right? Like you're seeing all mm. these things happening, and then you're like, well, you don't want to blame all of policing for this because of the lack of training that they're getting, right? And that's also what's happening, and so. I think a number of things need to be reclaimed. There's not just the religious and the ra the racial aspect of it, but I, I really want to focus on the police reform part of it. Not and, and like you said about the whole defunding, I mean that's it does sound good as a slogan, but when it comes to implementing as policy, it's it's much more difficult. Much more difficult. Yeah, and police training. I mean, I so I heard something uh, that I found interesting, which was that when 9/11 happened. Toronto police in within six months were being trained by these uh, elite New York police uh, training trainers. Um, and that's where we got sort of the militarized as far as tactics go. And they, they talked about this 21 foot rule about where if there's a suspect and he's within you within 21 feet, you have the right to shoot him and kill him. And these are the kind of things that, that people like me who've never taken training, I have a hard time trying to understand. You know, like the training itself feels to be the problem, not the lack of training. It's like, you know, the, the idea that um, we are prioritizing the possibility of a cop who might get injured over several suspects who might get killed. And, and, yeah. and why are we doing it like that? So it's, you know, the U.S. The US is definitely exceptional in, uh, in, in a number of things. <laughs> um, you know, trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> the gun culture, the gun culture there is, it's a ma massive, massive problem. And I'm talking about massive problem for officer safety. You know, there's a YouTube channel. I have no affiliation with it. It's called Police Activity. It's got all the videos of police shootings that took place. All of them. Uh, even the, you know, the, the big one that really blew up was uh, Michaela. The, she was a 16-year-old and she was yeah. in the process of stabbing another female. You see that shooting. <laughs> On what are you the, supposed to do? But it would, exactly. And and it, there's the thing, you know, as because I study this stuff, I have to, I watched all these videos. Uh, I, I've spent thousands of hours, I think, just trying, you know, watching training. Like, and the U.S. has a big gun problem. And so you'll see a lot of the cases where it's like they had to shoot the person. Like they really had no choice. The 21 foot rule, there's, a, there's another, you can see this uh, online as well, like knife, uh, a knife attack like so you can close the distance in that space even and they've done this testing a person who has a knife versus a police officer who's standing there with their arms up 
because if you're going to draw your weapon, you still need to move that latch forward before mm. you can pull your weapon out. Uh, so in that time, they have demonstrated that a, a person with a knife can close that distance and cut your neck before you even get your gun out. So he's a ninja. Like no, no. <laughs> if, here's the thing: you have to train in a in in a in such a way that you expect the attacker, okay, is also trained or something, right? If if it's an amateur, then you're 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 well trained, right? Mm -hmm. You're trained, you know, above and beyond. But you'll see in some of those cases where it's just like people come charging at you with a knife, and what are you gonna? And the police shoot them. Like I remember watching one where there were a, there was like good four bullets that went into this guy until he actually fell down. Because right. he was bleeding out. So if they could be hopped up on substances and whatever, and it's like, and that doesn't. So many, many cases, I think uh, if you look at the situation that the U.S. cops face, it's like, it's just, it's wild. Thank God that it's not like that up here in Canada. That's, that's all I got to say. I, I guess anytime guns are like stitched into the fabric of your culture itself, it's, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how a country with a second amendment like that is able to function at all. I really don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can see, right, with the, the all the active shooter incidents that the U.S. has, like, this is, it's a, it's an epidemic. Uh, before I let you go, am I right into say, in, in saying that or in thinking that um, uh, Islamic extremism is has decreased over the last, I don't know, since maybe since the downfall of ISIS, like in Western countries, like like especially in North America, let's just say. Yeah, you know. The thing is, is that we, there's always an underlying pool of candidates, okay, so to speak. So there's, there's always this extremism that's, you know, it, happening in society anyway, right? Terrorism is a, is a normal part of human society. I know it's hard for people to accept that and understand that, but for those of us who study it, you can go back, you know what I mean, to ancient times and you'll find terrorism, right? Mm -hmm. Religious terrorism, you had Jewish zealots you know, before Jesus, you know, existed, stabbing up Roman soldiers. Jesus was, they called Jesus a terrorist, right? For, well, for he, was he was allegedly executed as an enemy of the state, right? The Romans crucified as, people as that an they atheist, considered I, I to be. As an atheist, I, pl I applaud you for saying allegedly. Uh, I like that you caught that too. Eh? No, you're, you're, <laughs> yeah. you catch them. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, this is this is the reality right there will always be that and uh certain things will be catalysts that trigger activities so 9 11 was this major event and then you had two wars in afghanistan and in iraq and then the it was even it was even if you look after 9 11 you really didn't see like muslim terrorists right uh even the terror even that 9 11 attack was like an anomaly because I mean, you did have like the, the, the bombings that Osama bin Laden did in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, whatever, in 98. But it was after 2003, the war in Iraq, that we started to see Western terrorism. So the London bombings, the Toronto plots, the Australia plots. Mm -hmm. So the war in Iraq was a catalyst for that. And that triggered a bunch of activity. And then uh, the war in Iraq was really the first domino that dropped, which gave rise to ISIS. So by the time ISIS came up, 2012, 2013, that was another catalyst. And then we saw a bunch of attacks, right? 2014, 15, 16, and 17 is when they started to increase. And then by 2018, they had dropped because ISIS was being beaten back. But there's still a lot of attacks going on in the Middle East, in Africa. It's not happening in Europe yet. But I believe that once COVID restrictions are over this and that, 
the bad guys are going to go back to what they do. Well, hopefully we'll have more good guys like Moving Shake. Thank you for joining me today on Blackball, man. We hope to have you back sometime. Yeah, James. Thanks very that, was, much. that was fun, man. Cheers. All right, man. Have a good one. <clears throat> Moving Shake. Dude, that guy has the biography of like a Superman. <laughs> he's a movie. I don't know if he's – I'm going to ask him next time if he's ever been approached to uh, – to, to sell off his story from movie reds. Cause I think it's a pretty dope, um, dope story all around. Anyways, that was episode seven. My name is James DeFury. I'll see you next time on Blackball. Dean Blundell show coming up at three. Thanks everybody. The podcast super friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. I want to live at the Blue Hotel. The podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares. It's for the open-minded, the pleasure seeker. It's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd.